You're listening to Twitch Asylum Video Game Radio. Welcome to Twitch Asylum episode number 11. Yeah, here we are. Thanks for all the feedback on the forums and the feedback to Yahoo Podcast. We're back up to a five-star rating. It's great. It's awesome to see some feedback. Yeah, we got a lot of interaction happening on our forums at twitchasylum.com. Uh, lots of feedback on the issue that we brought up last time about whether PC gaming is dying. And I think the consensus on the forum is no way no, it's, it's not. No, it's not dying. It's yeah. not dying. There was a lot of uh, people who, uh, who responded to that and said, uh, no way. Peace Gaming is a nine. It's going to be kind of a different show tonight. Uh, one of our members is absent today. Woody wasn't able to make it at the last minute. He bailed on us, but uh, <laughs> what a jerk. But uh, he's ju- going to be back next episode. It's yeah, not it's like we fired him. Chris. Yeah. We so what you been fire- up to, Chris? Uh, me? Uh, I don't know. Not Well, yesterday I went wakeboarding. Yeah, we got cool. uh, Amy's brothers and Amy. We kind of got this boat thing together. And uh, we never really went out on it, so Amy wanted to go out yesterday, so I said, cool. Uh, I snowboard quite a bit, you know, enjoy doing that, so I decided, you know, I might as well try wakeboarding. Oh, is that your first time wakeboarding? Yeah, it was my first time wakeboarding. And uh, I couldn't really walk this morning. (laughs) Like, my back is totally tweaked. I don't know what I did, but... um, Did you do all sorts of fancy tricks and grabs and spins? Yeah, yeah, I did this neat trick where you get up, (laughs) and you, like, go for a little ways and then fall down. Oh, okay. I'm trying to perfect that one. And uh, the other thing I did is I got really uh, sunburned. So uh, yeah, I can see you look really red. Yeah, really, really red. Yeah. So um, so it was fun though. So uh, you know, uh, I'm not a pro yet, but I eventually I'll get there at the wakeboarding thing. So we're gonna have another listener on the show this time. Yep, Dante BK is joining us for the what we're playing now segment. And we're also going to be discussing the limited life on console-based online games, and also a topic that I've been personally wanting to do since the beginning of this podcast, which is the great Infocom. Which is kind of a transition from last episode, right? Because last episode we talked about Laserdisc games, which were primarily you know popular because of their graphics, right? Right. And the gameplay wasn't the thing. Well, with Infocom, all there no is graphics. is text. Yeah, <laughs> it's no all graphics, text. So. But some great classic games. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started and get on to the discussion. All right. All right, welcome to the discussion. What are we discussing this time, Tom? Well, we're going to talk about the limited lifespan of console-based online games. That's That's a mouthful. It sure is. So why did we choose a topic like this? All right, well, there's a couple reasons for that, Tom. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was, uh, you know, I get bored sometimes, and I, I collect, like, retro things, like all my consoles and stuff, and I was uh, looking at my Dreamcast the other day, and it was looking awful lonely. And I was like, you know, one thing that I never had on the Dreamcast that I always wanted was to, uh, to have the network adapter, because you had a Dreamcast, right? I did, yeah, I loved that. Right, so did you ever connect via the modem to the internet, and you were like, hey, I'm going to... Actually, I didn't. I only yeah. played single player on the Dreamcast. Kind of lamer, but that's yeah. fine. So uh, I did, 
you know, but I was like, it would be really cool if I had this broadband adapter. So I started searching eBay, and they were really expensive. And I was like, wait a minute. I wonder if you can even play any of these games online anymore. Like, is the server still up or Exactly. What? I mean, do you, are they even playable? So I went and checked out. There's this uh, website called dreamcast.onlineconsoles.com. Okay. And it basically lists, like, games that are still compatible with online. Uh, I was a little upset about that, Tom, because uh, there were very few games uh, that were available online. There was, like, 4x4 Evolution, Quake 3 Arena, Fantasy Star Online, only on the European servers. And a couple other games, uh, like uh, Star Lancer, which we'll talk about in a second. But there were really not much left. Well, that's interesting. I mean, I could see both sides of that because, on the one hand, if you have a Dreamcast and you have the games, you're still going to want to play them. On the other hand, the Dreamcast hasn't even been a you know a, a viable console or a still sold console in, in many years. Right. All so right. I could sort of understand if the games were no longer supported. Right. Well, the com- couple of games that are like 4x4 Evolution and Quake 3 Arena, those are supported because it uses the PC servers. Uh, so okay. those are the only reason they're still around. And like um, Star Lancer, some guy figured out how to uh, basically support online for Star Lancer and a couple other games, and he's released code apparently to do that. So they have servers running now that you can... So it's sort uh, of a homebrew effort for yeah, the servers? for getting those running. That's so. cool. So I was like, you know, that kind of sucks that all, all these online games that were available, you know, on the Dreamcast, you really can't play anymore. So I just, you know, I thought it was interesting, you know, kind of an aside, but, you know, no big deal. Nothing to have a discussion about, right? Right. But there was an announcement, uh, I think it was last week, that EA had, uh, you know, released their uh, list of online servers that they're going to close. And they had this whole, you know, list of them. And they said, uh, and so the list is as follows. On, like, August 1st, 2006, they're going to shut down a bunch of these game servers. And if you look at some of these games, they're not even that old. Yeah, FIFA Soccer 2005. Right. That's uh, that game is what less than a year old EA or, or Sports just Fight Night old? Round 2. It's already shut down? Yeah. Uh Need for Speed Underground 2, which I know a lot of people thought was pretty lame cuz they liked the cars and the, and the races better on that. NBA Street Volume 3. Dude, is that, that the latest <laughs> one? I thought it was. I thought it was the latest one. So that's getting shut down. And then on uh, October 1st, 2006, they're shutting down NFL Street 2. Unleashed for the PS2. And Madden NFL 2005? Yeah. So I got to thinking. I was like, um, you know, uh, I wonder if I look on the boxes, do they list, you know, that they're going to shut these down ahead of time? Or yeah, do they say it expires? expires right? So I pick up my copy of Madden 06 for the 360, which I've played, it, I think, at least twice. And, um, <laughs> and it says on the back that uh, online can be shut down uh, 30 days past the end of the NFL season. Wow. So think about it, dude. You're playing this game. You buy it right at the end of the NFL season during Super Bowl. Like 30 days later, they can they turn off the online. Down. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, EA, with their sports titles, they really operate on a, on a business model where the new game comes out every season. They expect you to upgrade. And this just seems like a way of kind of forcing you to upgrade by making the old game not even work online anymore. All right, so I give EA some credit that they at least list on their package this in very fine print on the back. <laughs> so I picked up Chrome Hounds. You've heard of Chrome Hounds, right, for the sure, 360? Yeah. And everybody bitches about the fact that the single-player game is pretty much non-existent. Right. It's and all, it's all about the online. the online. So I look on its packaging, and you know what it says? What? Nothing. So there's nothing about the online going away or how long it's going to be supported or whatever. And basically, when its online goes away, that game is done. You may as well throw it in the dumpster. Well, it sounds like we're moving to a, a world where you know, you're basically 
renting a game even when you buy it. You're buying a game that's only going to work with its full capacity for a certain amount of time. Yeah. And that seems sad. It seems wrong to me somehow. Right. Well, I mean, if you think about it, though, the Dreamcast was really the first console that supported, like, online gameplay, right? Yeah. And it wasn't really that integrated. It was kind of integrated. You had this 56K modem built in or whatever. And if you think about it, the Xbox was really the one that kind of set the stage, and then the PS2 With really Xbox did. Xbox Live get, and, yeah. and so PS2, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see, you know, in the future, how long those games are supported on, on the original Xbox, you know? Or are they right. all going to get shut down, or what's going to happen there, you know? Now, probably the publishers would argue that it costs them money to keep those servers up and, and maintain everything. And that really, you know, they're not going to support the game for the rest of your life. They're going to support it for some reasonable amount of time, right? Right. But I guess I think the thing that's odd, or it's not really odd, but it's just kind of scary, is that more and more games are, this online is an integral part of the game. With Chrome Hounds, it pretty much is a game, right? Right. So you're buying a game, and like you said, it's you're essentially leasing the game. You, you can have it for, you know, six months, maybe a year, and then you can't play that game anymore. So it's, you know, and there's not really much you can do with the game. Because there's no online support anymore. Right. So, I mean, it's just, it, to me, it's kind of a weird transition that isn't really being talked about that much. And maybe people don't play games past, you know, the first year that they purchase it. I, I mean, I go back and play all my old, you know, retro games, but maybe that won't be the case in the future. I don't know. Like, for sports games, if you're really into sports games, wouldn't you want the new rosters and the latest everything? What about Chrome Hounds? But Chrome Hounds, yeah, that seems like a different story. So the other thing I would say is, um, you know, a lot of the Dreamcast games, or a lot, all three of them, <laughs> or two of them, are, are able to be done because they got kind of a PC server, right? But with uh, Xbox and Xbox Live, things like online leaderboards and um, right. friends lists and, right. and uh, you know, uh, gamer points are such an integral part of the game. There's no way that the server is going to be a separate piece, right? Mm-hmm. It seems like it's got to be all this integrated service. So I don't really... Well, it's got to be a centralized service. Right. So and so I don't really see any hope for having even what the Dreamcast have has where certain games are able to be played beyond uh, you know the life of the of the console or at least So the let's say portion. 10 years from now if we still have Xbox 360 are there still going to be the leaderboards? Is that what you're saying? Are there still yeah. going to be the friends list? Well, I mean, are you still going to be able to play the games is what I would say. Like Chrome Hounds, I would say probably not, right? So Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking about seeing and it's like, you know, what what can be done about this? Is there anything that can be done? I don't know. I mean, online, well, you either have to go to an open standards model where anybody can host a server, and then, you know, you or I could make our personal PC be the server, and we could have games with our friends. I mean, that would be one option, but I just don't think that's going to happen for the Xbox 360. Yeah. I don't think they're going to make it into a totally open server model. Right. Well, I would say that, um, so I came up with a little list here. You know, I like to make lists. So, number one, I would think that, at a minimum, all games should list their, how long they're going to support online, at a minimum. Like, you know, EA says 30 days beyond the end of the season. Because right now, people don't know. You buy a game, I mean, they could shut off the online service tomorrow, right? Yeah. I mean, hopefully they'll take it off the shelves some reason, you know, period before that, but there's no guarantee. But what right? if you're buying the game used? Yeah, you, if you're buying it used, how do you know whether it's yeah. still supported? Like Chrome Hounds doesn't say on it when uh, when the online's going to go away. So mm-hmm. I think at a minimum they have to, as things go more online like this, you have to establish a policy where it's going to say on the box before you buy it, <laughs> not in the instruction manual, right. how long the online's going to be supported. Yeah. It just seems, you know, fair. 
And the other thing is, and this is obviously probably not going to happen, but I'd love to see more LAN-based supporting games. Yeah. Like, you know, Halo and Halo 2 have a LAN mode. So even after the servers go away, we can still get together, you know, connect our, our PCs, I mean, our, right. our 360s and play. And there's also, like, X-Link High, you know, with the Xbox, where yeah. you can use LAN mode and still connect with people over the Internet. So I would like to see LAN mode kind of become a standard way of being able to play these games. But my fear is, like, Halo 3, do you think there's going to be a LAN mode in Halo 3? I don't know. And there was a Halo 1 and Halo 2, but I'm not sure that Halo 3 is going to have it. I mean, maybe they will because they have LAN tournaments and whatnot, but but you never know. And, and I think the the best thing that they could do is to allow, you know, to run the servers on the PC, but I don't think that's really ever going to happen. It seems unlikely. I mean, people might hack together their own solution or something but i i think it's unlikely that would be officially supported so what do you feel about this i mean do you think it's going to be a, a big deal are people going to care or do you even care i mean i personally it it to me it, it kind of upsets me because i like the online stuff and i just feel like we're going to they're transient experiences where you experience them now and then in the future right. you're not going to be able to experience it again i guess I do feel the same way as you to maybe a lesser extent because I'm not as big an online player. I like the online component. I especially like leaderboards, friends lists, all the stuff like that on Xbox 360. Um, I, I don't necessarily get most of my enjoyment out of playing multiplayer online, though. Yeah. Um, with the exception of a few games like Star Wars Battlefronts and stuff like that. But yeah. um, So what happens in 10 years when you want to go back and play Battlefront and you can't? That's Yeah, that's too bad. I think... I think it is too bad. I think there's really nothing we can probably do about it, though. You're such a pacifist, <laughs> Maybe dude. I'm there's a nothing pessimist. we can do. Well, okay, let's take Star Wars <laughs> Battlefronts, which I, I really like that game, and I like playing it online. Isn't there a land mode in that, or is there not? On the PS2? I'm talking on the Xbox. Oh, no, I play it on the PS2. Oh, okay. So, um, I don't know, probably nothing. I, I don't think, in 10 years, we're probably not going to be able to play that multiplayer. Yeah, that's so and, sad. And that is, that is too bad, yeah. So what do you guys think about it? Come to the forums and tell us, you know, whether it bothers you at all that the games you're buying today with multiplayer and in the future as multiplayer becomes more predominant part of the games, we'll basically be able, uh, you won't be able to play them again. You know, limited lifespan games. Let us know. All right, it's time for what we're currently playing. What are you playing, Tom? Well, one thing I was playing is I got from Gamefly uh, Hitman Blood Money for the 360, which, uh, Chris, you had talked about on a previous episode. Yeah, it was great. I loved it. I loved all the blood and gore. Well, you know, that's what I didn't like so much about it. (laughs) The graphics are good. The gameplay mechanics are pretty good. I found it to be, to be honest, a little too violent for my taste. And when I say that... I am a person who I like Resident Evil 4. It's one of my favorite games of all time. That's a very violent game. I really like uh, the uh, Grand Theft Auto series. Those are very violent. But there's something different about Hitman because those other games seem more cartoony to me. They seem more silly. They have an aspect of silliness. But Hitman Blood Money, it just it's, it almost seems too real. It seems like you're just... You don't like dragging bodies across the floor and putting them in like the, the ice cooler or whatever it was? It's just kind of yeah. gross. It's yeah, like it's, good. It's, it's a very realistic murder simulator, and I don't know. I okay, mean, Jack Thompson. It's just... No, I'm not saying that the game should be censored. I think for people who want to play that kind of game, sure, they should have the right to play it. But I just did not enjoy that level of detail of 
you know, a very gore, too much gory, gross yeah. murder simulation. And so I just returned it to Gamefly. I'm going to get something else. So have you seen uh, that movie uh, that I talked about before, Hostel? No. Okay, you need to see that, and then the game won't, <laughs> won't seem so bad. <laughs> All right, maybe that's the trick. <laughs> Um, I've also been playing a little bit of Galaga. I'm going to use your pronunciation. Yeah, Galaga, time. not Galaga. Uh, okay. Galaga on Xbox Live Arcade. <laughs> See, yeah, everybody. Everybody but me pronounces it yeah. Galaga. Yeah. Now. Oh, well. Um, and then there's just uh, been a lot going on in real life that's kept me away from gaming. I've been out doing some mountain biking, some canoeing, camping. I went on the Portland Bridge Pedal this weekend, which is this event they have once a year where they close the bridges across the Willamette River and they let just bicycles go across. And they had something like 18,000 people in this event. And it was just sort of weird to be in that bigger group of bicyclists. And it's also sort of weird to bicycle across these freeway bridges, like the Fremont Bridge and the Markham Bridge, that normally you can only go across in a car, not even as a pedestrian, and to bicycle across them and then go down the steep like other side of the bridge and get going really fast on a bicycle. It's just a strange feeling to bicycle on the freeway. And so what does that have to do with video games? Uh, it's what I've been doing instead of video games. Oh, okay, games. I see, I see. <laughs> And then uh, just the other day, I was riding my motorcycle, and I got a lesson in why real life is not like MotoGP on the Xbox 360, which is I was uh, coming around a blind corner on Skyline, and there was a garbage truck stopped in the middle of the road, and in the other lane of oncoming traffic, there's two SUVs coming, so there's absolutely nowhere to go. Yeah. Now, the lucky thing about this story is I was obeying the speed limit, I was being good, I was being careful, and I stopped in plenty of time. But if I had been going at video game speeds... Yeah, it sounds like speeding, Paperboy. Um, that would have been a fatal incident, so be careful out there. All right, so uh, tonight we have Dante joining us from the Twitch Asylum forums. Uh, Dante, what are you playing? Uh, well, <clears throat> I recently got a Nintendo 64 just a few months ago. Finally, oh, nice. I kind of got out of gaming a little bit during that period, so I've kind of been going back and collecting older games, and I've been playing Perfect Dark. Uh, oh, I yeah. played Goldeneye at the time when a friend had a Nintendo 64, but I never played Perfect Dark before, so I'm playing Perfect Dark, and actually I don't really think it holds up very well. Oh, really? It kind of reminds it makes me think a lot of, uh, no, if you guys ever played No One Lives Forever for yeah. the PC. Yeah, definitely. And it makes me think of that because they both kind of involve uh, female super spies. Except right. No One Lives Forever is so many, so much more unique and so much more advanced technology-wise that playing Perfect Dark just kind of feels like I'm playing a really old game. We should try a Perfect Dark Zero. <laughs> well, unfortunately, I don't have an Xbox 360 yet. I can't afford uh, <laughs> to play it yet. No, I mean, it, it's even worse than the original Perfect Dark, in my opinion. Oh, it's worse? Yeah. I don't know. I thought it was okay. The gameplay in Perfect Dark is okay. It's just It just feels old because you, you can't. Like during the cutscenes, the people don't open their mouths. They just kind of wag w- their heads around. <laughs> you feel like, yeah, I'm playing a really old game. Oh, man. I have trouble difficulty level because the easiest difficulty is a little too easy, and the next one up is a little too hard. I, every time I try to escort something, someone, the escort always gets killed right away. They just run right through <laughs> oh, the bullets. They don't follow me into the room. Yeah, the AI wasn't stellar back then. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Like I, had a, I was like, oh, I have a good idea. I'll get him to go into the closet. He'll wait in the closet. I'll go kill everybody. Put him in the closet. Oh, I'm coming out of the closet. Comes right out, runs after me. Stay behind me, lying robot head. And uh, I just also finished playing uh, King's Quest Eight: Mask of Eternity for the PC. Oh, cool! You're way and retro, I man. I think I was talking about King's Quest a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, we were. 
this is the only King's Quest game that I had not finished yet. I had played all the other King's Quest games already, so I'm kind of a completist that way. I wanted to finish it out. Holy cow. Um, <laughs> have you guys ever played King's Quest 8? Not 8, no. No, I didn't play 8 either. They're trying to do like Tomb Raider or something. Like It's, it's a third-person action-adventure. There's a lot of combat, and there's a lot of climbing things. But they kind of got oh, away man. from the puzzles. They kind of got away from the like the humor that had made the series was really good. And a lot of the fans I've been like looking at stuff online don't even really consider it part of the King's Quest series because it doesn't involve any of the characters from the previous series. It involves like a new character who has to put yeah. together the Mask of Eternity that got bursted apart by some random evil tyrant off in the realm of the sun. So it's sort of like really melodramatic storyline. Without the humor, it's just, you know, every time that somebody calls you the champion eternal or you have to go talk to a tree and get a class it kind of feels yeah it definitely came after i think you know obviously the heyday of sierra so um a lot of the games later in their life you know i i think uh, people kind of bagged on as not being true sierra sierra games and i think that probably falls into that that might have been the last adventure game they put out i'm not really sure i don't know if there, i can mm, think yeah. of any that came out after that but um i have hopes for i don't know if you guys know about the the fan-made King's Quest game they're doing, King's Quest Yeah, Nine. Yeah. yeah, we talked about that a while back. Yeah, yeah exactly. And uh, they have actually official permission from Vivendi Universal to make it, which is kind of cool. Right. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. Yeah, I really hope that takes off. What's been taking up most of my time, though, is Elder Scrolls Oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I bought a video card just to get this game, and uh, I'm PC really gaming at its it. best. It for... <laughs> yeah, the graphics are incredible. Um, I've been using a lot of mods and stuff to, inc- to enhance the gameplay and enhance the graphics, and I've been playing it for at least, like, over 20 hours already, just going on quest after quest. Have you guys played it? Yeah, I've played it on the Xbox 360, but I found it to be very buggy on the Xbox 360, and I actually returned it because it was driving me nuts because the game would crash every time I was trying to complete a quest. Yeah. I should give another chance for the PC because I haven't had a crash once. <laughs> well, that's what people say. <laughs> that's what people say is that it's it's much more reliable on the PC. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, you get all the mods, and uh, yeah. I just think it's easier to play with the keyboard and mouse because it's kind of like a first-person shooter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds familiar. I think we get a lot of that feedback after the last show. <laughs> <laughs> but really, I just I don't really usually play role-playing games. Like, I can't stand like the Final Fantasy series, really, where you don't really have a lot of like gameplay or interaction. But this, it kind of reminds me of like a Grand Theft Auto type game, just open-ended gameplay, tons of different quests. You can pretty much do anything you want. Yeah, it is sort of a Grand Theft Auto style fantasy. Yeah, I mean, when I played it, that's kind of the impression I got. So I'm really enjoying it. And uh, what I kind of what character Daggerfall. class do you have? Well, I pick. Uh, I want to do like a warrior thief. I'm playing as an acrobat. Okay. Oh, um, wow. Sort of a combination of like blade and uh, sneaking and lock picking, with uh, a lot of athletics and stuff. But it's made it really hard for me to increase my magic skills because they all started out really, really low. So I'm going to try to do everything, though. Like, I'm going to just, as soon as, I'm going to do the story first if I join the, the Assassin's Guild in case I get any uh, infamy I can't wash off. But I'm going to try to do everything. Everything sounds cool. I'm loving it. Yeah, it's definitely a cool game. It's too bad Tom gave up on it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll have to do it on Give the PC. Chance. Maybe that's the way to do it. Yeah. Just because you can't get points doesn't mean it's not worth playing. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, Tom is kind of a uh, points whore. 
Now, I, yeah. it, it wasn't about the achievement points for me. It was about the fact that I'd invested like 20 or 30 hours into my character, and then the game would just lock up and freeze, and I would have to go back to a previous save, and then it would happen over and over and over. And I read online that, um, I guess people were saying that the official line on that is you can get corrupted save files on the Xbox 360 with that game, and the only way around it is to start over with a new character. And I was just like, no way. I'm not going to start over every time this happens <laughs> after I've put 20 or 30 hours into building my character. It's just You're crazy. You're just not a real gamer, Tom. It's it just so too far big. with the bugs. Yeah. Well, a lot of people, I mean, Tom's really the only person that I think's found these bugs because I know tons of other people like Teal, one of our listeners, and he plays it all the time and never has any bugs. So I believe it's just Tom's 360. <laughs> he doesn't know how to play it correctly. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. So, Chris, what are you playing? All right, well, I'm playing a... Well, all right. I'm playing a lot of different stuff this month for some reason. Um, what I did is I went to PlayAsia.com. Have you heard of PlayAsia.com? No. All right. So I went there because there was a game coming out for the 360 called Bullet Witch, which I had heard about, and I heard it was supposed to be pretty good. Uh, it's a Japanese game. It's not being released in the U.S. for a while, but I heard I think maybe Atari just picked it up. I'm not sure if that's correct. but uh-huh. So I went there to go ahead and pick it up. You know, I was going to order it if I could get the Japanese version, but I went there and it said it wasn't, you know, didn't support the U.S. Uh, you know, they region locked it, so that kind of sucked. Uh-huh. But while I was, on, I was on there, I saw all the Japanese PSP games. And, of course, the PSP is region free. Yeah, and I've seen some of those Japanese PSP games at Fry's. Yeah, exactly, but... They had uh, Goku Makimura. Is that how you pronounce it, Tom? Yeah, that's pretty close. And so that's basically Ultimate Ghosts and Goblins, which I don't think is going to be out until next month. So I saw that online. I had to order it. And I also ordered Every Extend Extra, which is another game that isn't going to be out for a while in the U.S. So I picked up both those games from PlayAsia.com for about $80. So that's pretty much equivalent to what it'll cost when it does come out in the U.S. Yeah. So I've been playing a ton of Ultimate Ghosts and Goblins, and it's it's probably the best PSP game I've played, I have to say. Hmm. The graphics are awesome. It's a, I mean, you played Ghosts and Goblins in the arcade, right? Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the graphics are, you know, really good. It's still 2D, but it has this real nice art style and flair to it. I mean, yeah. it just looks incredible on the PSP. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like the classic game, but it's a lot larger. You have these really cool boss characters, and you have the ability to collect items like uh, different types of uh, armor and stuff, so you can like mm-hmm. have this flying armor and stuff. And uh, you know, and the cool thing is, like, if you go to Metacritic, it's actually getting really good scores. Everybody gave it good scores except for one magazine. You know what that magazine was, Tom? Uh, could it be EGM? EGM, Electronic Gaming <laughs> Monthly. I, I mean, couldn't have predicted that, right? So I, I'm reading their review this month, and the guy's like, it's just too hard. I die too much, and my double jump doesn't work. That's what I was going to ask you. Is it as hard as the original? Yeah, is it as hard? Yeah. Well, it depends on that. This is the thing. There's a novice difficulty setting. You set it on novice, you get like six guys to start each level with, and you, all you have to do is clear the level, and it saves. So, And you can continue from where you left off. So it's like an easy game. Like I finished the whole game in like five hours on the novice setting, so now I'm going through it on the medium difficulty. And the guy's like, I can't double jump. Well, dude, you push the button, you take your finger off, you push it again. It's never <laughs> failed for me. I don't understand. So they give it this really stupid low score, and they're like, it's too hard. I don't know, dude. It's like they don't take the time to even look at the game. So, uh, hmm. you know, and the thing is, if it is too hard, isn't that some of the fun? Like it being a bit challenging that you can't clear yeah, it? Yeah, I, I would think it would be challenging to not be able to just do it the first time through. Right. I mean, but these guys are doing reviews quickly, right? So they want to get through it. So it's probably annoying to them that yeah. they actually have to work. Well, they probably have a deadline that, you know, yeah. by tomorrow they have to write the review. But from a gamer's perspective, I like <laughs> the challenge because when I finish it, I feel like, hey, I've accomplished something. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the 360, the game I've had the most fun at is probably Call of Duty 2. 
uh, on veteran difficulty just because yeah. when I get through a level, it's like, you know, I've been through, well, I won't say I've been through war, but it feels like <laughs> I've been through the war. You know, I'm like, I, you know, I just yeah, drag into bed and fall asleep because I'm so damn tired from going through the level, you know? So yeah. I enjoy that, the challenge. Maybe I'm weird. But uh, so yeah, I've been playing Ultimate Ghosts and Goblins. I don't know. I remember Super Ghouls and Ghosts from the Super uh, Super Nintendo, and that was got to be one of the hardest games I ever played. I don't. Even, I think I I had played that game for hours, and I, and I never got past like, the third level. <laughs> right. In fact, I have my Super Nintendo set up in the other room here, and that's the game I play most often on my Super NES. And I still have troubles get, getting through any of the levels. It's just a tough game. Um, I, in fact, I find the PSP game a lot easier than the Super NES one, so I, hmm. I, I don't know, you know. So the other game uh, I've been playing is Every Extend Extra. Is that what it is, or is it Extend, Extend Every Extra? Extend Every Extra? I don't remember which it is. Anyway, go look at the PSP and tell me. But uh, <laughs> but <laughs> it's basically a PSP music shooter from the peop- the guy who did uh, Luminous, Res, and Meteos. I guess is uh, Mizuguchi. Is that his name? Mizuguchi. Mizuguchi, yeah. So uh, it's kind of a weird game. You basically blow yourself up. That's kind of the idea. You blow yourself up. And try to cause these chain reactions. So there's like these things floating around on the screen, and when enough of them get together, you blow yourself up and you try to set off this chain reaction. You try to get the largest chain reaction possible. That reminds me of, uh, what's that crash mode in the car driving game? Um, oh, Burnout? Burnout, yeah, yeah. Where, you, where you can blow yourself up. Is it like right. that? Right. It's kind of like, well. It's nothing like that, Tom. But um, but the concept maybe on the surface seems similar. But um, and then there's these uh, boss characters at the end of each level. You have to fight and you have to hit them with a certain number of uh, of these combinations of chain reactions and stuff like that. So it's very a very Japanese feeling game, but it's very cool. But that it's it's good. hard as heck, dude. I can't get past the second <laughs> level's boss characters. Like two of these things on each side. And uh, it's pretty hard. Yeah. Well, you got to let me borrow it. No, no, try I will definitely let you borrow it. I'll, I'll show it to you tonight, though. It's it's kind of crazy, but um, it's it seems pretty addicting. But I've been playing Ultimate Ghosts and Goblins on my PSP, so every time I, uh, you know, I, I start it up, I play that instead of uh, instead of every extend extra. But you know, as soon as I uh, finish it on the medium difficulty, I think I'll go back to every extend extra on the PSP. So. Cool. And then on the 360, I've been playing Dead Rising. Have you the seen zombie the, game. The zombie game, yeah. I have not played it yet, but it looks cool. Yeah, it's good times. Uh, I rented it. I didn't buy it. I, I talked about on the forum buying it, but uh, but then I've kind of got burnt too many times buying these short games, and I wasn't sure <laughs> if this would be a short game, so I went ahead and did rent it. And uh, it's very cool, uh, very bloody, you know. but it's done in kind of a comical way, right? Yeah. So, you know, my favorite weapons that I've found so far are like the lawnmower. Yeah, I, I the find, lawnmower is a weapon. Yeah, you can just like run over the zombies. You kind of <laughs> plow them down, stuff like that. Uh-huh. And there's this other weapon that's kind of like a really long drill that we'd use like to <laughs> drill into walls and stuff. I mean, it's not really a drill, but like a two-handed kind of drill. And so you like you can get a zombie on it, and he starts spinning around. Oh man! And then you know you like go up and you take out other zombies, and like little pieces of his body flies off until there's his body's not on it anymore. So it's, that it's, sounds really gross. Yeah. It's really enjoyable. You know, you would think it's gross, but Amy, my wife, watched it, and she started laughing. She thought it was funny. Yeah, you know, I guess it depends on how something like that is presented. Right. It could be funny or it could be gross. So the one thing about the game is it's kind of different, I would say, than a lot of games out there right now in that um, you basically it's kind of meant to be played multiple times. So you have mm-hmm. a lot of decisions you have to make about things to do during the game. Like, you can follow the main quest. But there's also these hostages you can take care of, and there's these side quests, uh, things that happen, and you have all these decisions, but you kind of have to stay on this time schedule to finish the main story. Right. So there's a lot of decision-making that goes on. Uh, I've primarily been following the main quest. 
So if you play it multiple times, can it can you get different endings, or can it turn out different ways? Or? Yeah, there's different endings, and uh, and also like uh, you get you get to keep like the abilities that you've achieved the previous time you played the game, so you'd be more powerful the second time you go through. Oh, that's, so that gives you an incentive to play it again. Yeah, too. and there's lots of stuff to find in the game, and there, there's no way you could do it all in one game. So it really, you know, uh, it's meant to be played multiple times, and it, it's pretty fun though. Uh, the one thing I would complain, there's several things that are kind of flaky about the game. Uh, one is the save system. I don't know if you've heard about this, but there's no. only one save slot. Oh, really? So, But there's a workaround for this. You can use a memory card as a second save slot. So, <laughs> so people are going out and buying memory cards so they can save using two different slots, which is totally stupid, right? And there's only certain places... <laughs> it's a ploy to sell memory cards. That's right. That's what I think. But uh, there's only certain spots where you can save the game, and it's primarily like bathrooms and this one couch. <laughs> so you end up going into urinate, and then you can save your game. But a lot of times you'll be far into it, and then you have to try to find a bathroom real quick to save your game. So that's kind of odd. I didn't even know the 360 had memory cards. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, you know what really bugs me about the 360 games is there's certain games on the 360 where every time you play it, it asks you where you want to save the game. Yeah, that's do what you this wanna, one does. Do you want to save it on the hard drive? Well, it's like, hello, that's the only place you can save it because I don't have a memory card plugged in. Why it's do you just keep re- asking it's me It's reminding you that there it? are more than one possibility. Oh, it drives me nuts when it does that. <laughs> right, so that was a good tangent, Tom. Yeah, but I wasn't tangent. done with my review of Dead Rising. So okay. <laughs> the other thing I would say about Dead Rising is uh, the boss fights are really stupid, too. You know, along with the save system, I thought the boss fights were kind of dumb. Remind me a lot of uh, Gun. Do you remember yeah, Gun? I remember you, Gun. So you go into the, the boss fights, and it kind of switches the music, and, you know, you do this little thing. And it reminded me totally of Gun, except for this is, like, way easier. Easier than Gun? Gun wasn't that hard. I know. But here's <laughs> all you have to do for every single... If you want to beat every boss battle, here's what you do. You go upstairs, you go into the cafeteria, and you grab a bunch of the orange juice. So, like, uh, you can basically replenish your health. And mm-hmm. you grab the SMG, submachine gun. Is that mm-hmm. what it is? Yeah. And, uh, and you can just take out any boss character. And you just kind of hide behind the wall. And as they kind of walk out, you take them out. I mean, there's really nothing cool. to it, dude. Power of vitamin C. Exactly. It's all about the <laughs> vitamin C. But here's, here's so, so, basically, they're trying to sell you memory cards and orange juice. Right. But the game is really good. I mean, I think it's fun. A lot of people have all these problems with it. The text is too small and all this stuff. But, you know, I'm having fun with it. Of course, I didn't buy it. I just rented it. But here's the one thing I would say about this game. Is that it's proof that uh, releasing a game during the dry period can help you sell games. Because I think this is one of the games that would definitely get lost if it was released, you know, right prior to Christmas. But releasing it now, everybody's playing it. You yeah, know, so. that's a good point. Yeah. So that's pretty much what I'm playing. Oh, I did play the Pac-Man, you know, on the Xbox Live Arcade Pac-Man. I have not played that yet. <clears throat> yeah, it's you know what it plays like? Uh, uh, Pac- like Pac-Man? Pac-Man. Yeah, but the achievements are really easy, so, yeah. <laughs> oh, so you're playing it for the achievements? No, that- I'm just I'm pointing that out, Tom. Uh, I'm not saying I'm playing it for... You're pointing it out in case I might want to play it for Right, because I know that's what you're into. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, Dante, do you have any uh, final thoughts for us? Uh, no, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. I had a good time. Yeah, thanks for being a guest on the show. Thanks a lot. Awesome. All right, so it's on to the next segment, which is... What is it? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the news, Tom. We'll see. We keep changing our mind about what the order of the show is. Yeah, I think we're going to do the news. News, okay, news, news. All right. It's time for the news. What's going on, Tom? What's up in the news? What are you doing? All right. Well, I have to say, first of all, 
During the break, Chris showed me that Ultimate Ghosts and Goblins on the PSP, and my mind is still reeling from how cool that is. I told you. I mean, it really looks well, great. Well, I'll tell you, EGM gave it like a 4.5. It is the best looking game I've seen on the PSP. <laughs> I know. It really looks awesome. Yeah. Gotta get that game. Okay, so the news. <laughs> the first news story is one that I selected. And I selected it because for many episodes now, Chris has been ranting about downloadable content and the various dangers of downloadable content. And I kind of thought it, maybe he was being a little paranoid. And I'm then always I, paranoid, Tom. And then I read this story and I thought, man, Chris is a prophet. Because That's everything right. that he predicted about the problems that could arise with downloadable content have absolutely come true. So there's this uh, article. It, it's actually a posting, I think. Anyway, this guy had an Xbox 360, and his DVD drive developed some kind of mechanical problem. He sent it in for repair, and they replaced the whole thing. When he got the system back, and I guess they actually replaced the whole system, he went to go to Xbox Live Arcade, and he found that his girlfriend could no longer play the games that he had bought unless (laughs) his account was logged in, which is stupid because then she has to play as him, right? Well, it's good for him. And so... Assuming she's good. (laughs) (laughs) But so, okay, here's what the article says. says, quote, When you buy a game, it's associated with your user profile. It also automatically authorizes the console you purchased the game from, such that anyone who plays that game on that console is unrestricted. Don't buy games at your friend's house and stick them on a memory card and bring them home. You'll get nailed by this. If you transfer the game from one storage unit to another, the DRM is changed to only the person whose profile purchased the game is authorized to play. And they need to be signed in to Xbox Live for the game to be unlocked. I don't even understand any of that. It's so that you don't download a game on Xbox Live, put it on a memory card, give it to your friend's machine, right. and then they can play it too. That's what it's trying to prevent. Okay, got it. So the idea of it is good, except... So this guy, his Xbox 360 breaks, they have to give him a different one, and now all of a sudden, nobody can play the Xbox games that he's legally purchased oh, for, for arcade... Him. Except for his login. Yeah, I got it. Now, he he bought those games. He has the right to play them, but he can't. Well, now, there is a workaround. So, he had to go on, uh, get on the phone with tech support, spend a couple of hours figuring this out. And there's this very complicated workaround where you create a dummy account and you do all this weird stuff. And, uh, you know, he eventually got it working, but he was sort of discouraged at how difficult this was and how the DRM made it really hard to do something that should have been really easy, which is play the game that he bought. Yeah, totally. And here's another quote from the posting. It says, You'd think that not having to fuss with a game disc would be easier, not harder. (laughs) But it's exactly the opposite. I can take the game disc to my friend's house without having to fight the DRM. I can get a second console and play the game disc on either one without having to screw around signing in profiles or setting up dummy accounts. Yeah, totally. So, Chris, I think you're right. Yeah. (laughs) There's some problems with downloadable content. And it makes me think... What if someday I get a second Xbox 360 so I can have one upstairs and one downstairs? Does that mean I'm not going to be able to play the games on the other Xbox 360 that I bought for the first Xbox 360? Right. Well, I had a similar thing because we have an Xbox 360 at work. And uh-huh. I like want to play Geometry Wars at work in case I get a really high score there. And I want to use my profile. But right. then you have, to invent, you have to put your profile on your memory card to transfer around. And it's like a big pain in the butt. And I just huh. like, you know, whatever. I'll just play it at home and I won't play it at work, I guess. So... So what else is going on? Okay, there's another interesting article. This is from uh, the website Escapist. And it says, EA reduces support for PSP and focuses on the DS. 
Now we've been talking about this. This also makes you and maybe me and maybe Woody and maybe everybody yeah. on this podcast seem a little bit like we we caught on to something because we were talking about how we'd gotten kind of disillusioned with the PSP. Although we just saw I got that Ultimate great Ghosts game. and Goblins and yeah, that's every a great extend game. extra. But and and also Locoroco. But you know, on previous episodes, we'd gotten a little disillusioned with yeah. the PSP and, and excited about the DS. And here, there's this announcement. It says, uh, "Electronic Arts." COO of Worldwide Studios, David Gardner, claims the company will focus more on the DS. I just don't buy this because, uh, to me, EA is not that innovative, right? I mean, where's EA making most of their money? It's on sports games. And have you ever played like a sports game on the, the Game Boy Advance or the DS? It's just horrible. Yeah, I, haven't, I don't play sports yeah, games. Yeah, but I mean, it's like EA and innovative is kind of like an oxymoron, <laughs> right? I mean, I don't see them being able to create DS games. In fact, I, I'm not going to rant on the DS too much because... Um, I like my DS, but I would say that the majority of games I play on my DS are still Nintendo games. They still have this problem with not being able to integrate third-party products well into their systems, and I think the same thing may happen for the Wii. You know. Well, if that's what you believe, then why is EA deciding to focus more on the DS and less on the PS? Because there's more of an audience. I mean, it's a much larger audience, right? So, I mean, they see the audience. They think they should focus on it to develop these games. I'm just saying that it hasn't really been proven yet that other companies can be successful with a Nintendo console, I guess, you know. And for me, I mean, what games are you playing on the DS? I'm assuming the majority of them are Nintendo games, right? Most of them are. Yeah, so, I mean, and me too, right? So, uh, you know, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if EA can come up with a really innovative game that uses this stylus and stuff, but uh, but I guess I have my doubts right now. You don't. So you're saying you don't want to play Madden with the stylus? No. I, mean, I don't want to play Madden on the DS, dude. It's not really meant for the DS, right? I mean, the DS may, it doesn't have the flashy graphics or anything. It's more about innovative gameplay. Okay, is there an EA game that you would want to play on the DS? No. There isn't a single one? No. Okay. I can't think of an EA game that I would want to play on the DS. All right, so on that note, uh, there's an interesting uh, article about hardware. Right. Uh, this hardware my, sales. Yeah, so July hardware numbers. We Actually, we talked about this on the forum a bit. The uh, PS2 outsold the 360. So uh, That surprises yeah. me. On the hardware side, this is for uh, July. DS sold 377,000 units for the month, followed by the PS2 with 240,000, the Xbox 360 with 200,000, and the PSP uh, bring up the rear at 160,000. I have to say, it really surprises me. That the PS2, which is now a semi-obsolete console with the PS3 coming out very soon, is outselling the 360. But here's why I think it happened, right? I mean, it's July. There's not a whole lot of games coming out. The price is, what, 129 now? So everybody who maybe bought an Xbox and maybe even bought an, already bought an Xbox 360 is like, you know, it's 129 I didn't get to play God of War. I missed out on Resident Evil 4. I'm going to go ahead and pick one of these up. You know, it's, it's the price of two Xbox 360 games and get some <laughs> games that I missed out on. You know, I mean, I, I think that, that could be what's happening. But uh, Interesting. And if you look at the price, I mean, the 360 is uh, $400 versus 129 of the PS2. So it's a, a right. bit unfair, you know. I mean, in total sales, it's obviously the Xbox 360 is higher. Um, in terms of money, right, being spent. So, but in terms of installed base, I mean, whatever's got the most users out there, right. the most players, is going to attract developers, right? No, I totally agree with that. I'm just saying that the PS2 is a much cheaper purchase. You know, I sure, bought my yeah. GameCube for fifteen dollars the other day. So, uh, <laughs> how did you get it for fifteen dollars? I don't know. I told you, dude. It was. Was like, there some guy in the street corner selling uh, DS? The house or? I got it at looked a little bit like a drug house, but I, I don't think that had anything to do with it. So, uh, 
Amazing. So, yeah. Okay, so uh, talk about Call of Duty. Yeah, so uh, we talked about this on the forums as well. If you actually went on the forums, Tom, you would have seen this. But uh, but uh, I thought I'd bring it up for the listening audience. I've been know. on the forums. I post on the forums. Yeah. All right, so uh, apparently uh, <laughs> almost one million in Call of Duty maps were sold. So in a question and answer session following the company's earnings call, Activision CEO Bobby Kotick? Kotick? Is it Kotick? Kotick, I think. I really can't do names, I'm finding out, by doing this podcast, dude. I need to work on it. But anyway, he broke down the numbers of downloads and money made by each downloadable map pack. The free bonus pack, which included two maps, tallied... 334,000 downloads. The $5 skirmish map pack was downloaded 105,000 times and generated $368,000. And the $10 invasion map pack invaded 66,360s and raked in almost a half million dollars. So we've talked a lot about, um, you know, downloadable content and whether we're going to see more of this, you know, like shipping maybe these partial games so they can they can make right. more money on the downloadable content. And, you know, if they're getting a million dollars on their map packs for Call of Duty 2, I don't see anything that's going to prevent them from, from integrating this into a lot of their newer games, which scares the heck out of me. Well, yep. But on the other hand, I see why people would do it from the player point of view. You buy a game, you've already got the game, you like the game. To spend $5 more to get more content seems like a pretty good deal compared to spending another $60 to get a new game. Right, right. so I'm going to develop a game for $60, and I'm like, we have this really cool level, and I'm like, you know, I don't know if we should put that in the game, Tom. Because why, we why could, don't we just charge why extra Why don't we just charge it? $5 for it after <laughs> we ship the game? No, it's true. You're absolutely right. But it seems like an inevitable thing that, you know... Everything's you're, inevitable. You're going to have... An opportunity to sell a slight upgrade. It's no different than... I'm just saying that I think you're going to get partially shipped games for $60 now because it is a success. But the thing is, I mean, I I know that it's inevitable, but it just kind of irritates me a bit. If the original game without the added content sucks, then the game's not going to succeed. I mean, the game has to be good to begin with. Right. Right. And if it's good, then you're going to pay a little bit, a few bucks more. It's good that you pay $60 for a demo, right? No, I'm saying that the original game has to be good. It has right. to be worth the sixty bucks. But when a latte costs three fifty, wouldn't you buy a map or a new level for five dollars? You know, I don't really buy lattes, Tom. Well, I'm just saying, it's it's one of those small purchases that's going to upgrade the whole thing. All right. Well, it irritates me. So uh, next subject. So uh, <laughs> Microsoft showed off the uh, HD DVD drive recently for the Xbox 360. Uh, I guess Kevin Collins demonstrated it, and uh, he said it's scheduled to hit stores for the upcoming holiday shopping season. That's really nothing new. Uh, but they did show the device. Did you see the picture of it? No. All right. So it's it's kind of this uh, about the size, I guess, of a hardback book. And uh, Does it sit on top of the 360? What? How does it work? I think it sits, you know, has a cable, so you can, like, put it wherever you want. It could be on top. I wouldn't put it on top because it already has heating issues, so I'd probably put it on the side of it. But... Um, <laughs> But yeah, I guess well, if- so there's all this stuff hanging off the 360s, like the giant power adapter. Now there's this other thing. Like, that doesn't seem very sleek and, and integrated to me. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's sleek and integrated, but it plays uh, HD DVD movie song. So okay. anyway, the device, which is not sleek and innovative. It might be innovative. Did you it's say not innovative? Integrated. Oh, integrated. Okay, sorry. <laughs> so uh, I guess he, uh, he showed this whole HD DVD and he showed Phantom of the Opera. And he de- declined to disclose the price, but today there was an article that rumored it to be around uh, two hundred dollars. So, what do you think? Would you pay two hundred dollars for an HD DVD drive? Um, 
Assuming that Netflix will rent me HD DVDs. I think they aren't they already doing that? They might be. Then yeah, I would pay 200. So, I guess my thing is if HD DVD and from everything I've read, like people are saying HD DVD is better than Blu-ray right now in terms of quality. I mean, I don't know if that's going to hold, especially with the PS3 coming out. Mm-hmm. But if it is, I mean, if it's $200 and all the other devices are 500, I mean, I would definitely do it. Um, but, you know, at this but I I really think HD DVD by the time I'm going to buy an HD DVD, if I could say it, uh, the price will drop. So I and maybe then the Microsoft's price will drop. I think well. for people without HGTV, of course, this is a moot point. Yeah. Um, if you do have a nice HGTV, though, you will notice on the Xbox 360 that when you play a DVD movie, it doesn't look nearly as good as the games look. Right. And once you are used to the level of quality of the the higher end games. You definitely want the movies to look that good too. No, I totally agree with that. I'm just saying that because it is a console or a format war, right between the Blu-ray and HD DVD. Are you willing, you know, in November when it comes out to lay down 200 on something that might be obsolete? I mean, it could be the next beta, right? It could be. There's always that risk, at, you know, being the early adopter. But personally, yes, I will pay the 200 bucks. So you're going to do that versus a PS3 with Blu-ray. The PS3 is so expensive. Yeah, no, I agree. That I just don't know if I can spend six hundred dollars. Yeah. Well, I'm not, but I, I don't know if I'm going to buy it. On a system, I, I mean, like I that. do want HD movies. I'm just not sure that it's going to be HD DVD. It's just st- still, I'm a little. It's worried. hard to tell. Yeah. yeah. So the next uh, news item, I guess they came out today, right? It's uh, the yeah, next, that was today. Yeah, it's really cool. A cool announcement by Microsoft. Uh, this uh, announcement of the XNA. Is it XNA Game Studio Express? And it's basically a development kit for Xbox Live arcade games. Right. And, but, uh, yeah, so the idea is that anybody with a PC uh, and this toolkit can develop uh, PC and 360 games, I believe, right? Right. And uh, essentially, uh, they said it won't be integrated with uh, you know the uh, marketplace initially, so you could... You know, go to a website and download this and transfer it to your 360, or you can send it via email or whatever. These little programs that you've written, and your friends can load them on their uh, on their 360. I saw a, another take on this that said that Microsoft was promoting this as the YouTube for games, yeah. and you know, trying to harness this vast bunch of people who want to create their own content the right. same way people are creating video content for YouTube right. to create games. I think it's a great idea. Now, of course. Most people aren't going to be able to create great games. Well, but I don't the know about fact that. is that enough probably will that we'll get some really cool right. games out of this. Well, one of the people I don't know, remember Garage Games. I don't know if you remember this. But oh yeah, they did. They did Marble like, Madness or whatever. Marble that is. Blast. Ultra. Marble Blast. But yeah. they also make a toolkit called Torque. And I wish Woody was here because Woody and I looked into Torque and we were looking at building a game using the Torque engine. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you played this, but there was that game where you built the little, uh, was it the Lego houses and stuff, and then you could go knock them down. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that game? On the that PC. Was, yeah. That was built with the Torque engine. So Garage oh. Games has already got their toolkit uh, compatible with this mm-hmm. XNA. And it's a really high-level scripting kind of language where pretty much anybody can throw together a real simple game. So I think it's, you know, a lot of people are going to be able to create games, you know. But what I worry about with this is, to me, this opens up the Xbox to all of the issues you have with the PC as far as, you know, could somebody have access to your hard drive with it? Could, you know, could they... Could somebody write a game that's malware? <laughs> exactly. That, that is a virus or that yeah. that sends out your information. I mean, they're or... going to try to sandbox it, obviously, but, you know, if they're not... 100% accurate on being able to protect everything, there could be issues, right? So that, that's a little worrisome to me. 
So pretty soon you, you log into your Xbox, you get all sorts of pop-up ads. And right, exactly. <laughs> you need a stuff. pop-up blocker for your 360, I'm thinking. <laughs> some point in the future. That's scary. I hope that doesn't happen. Yeah. I, I like the idea, though. I like the idea of letting anybody develop a game for Xbox. Right, so okay. you're going to write a game, Tom? I don't know that I have time to write a game, but uh, maybe. Yeah. All right. Well, it's on to the uh, next segment, which is... I don't even know anymore. It's the Retro Respect. Retro Respect, yeah. And we're talking about Infocom. Welcome to the Retro Respect section. This time we're talking about Infocom. And uh, as we mentioned earlier, last time we focused on LaserDiscs, and which were primarily graphics-based. Well, Infocom relies solely on text in its games. Yeah, and Infocom, as I said in the intro, this is a segment I've been wanting to do almost since we started this podcast. Because All 11 episodes. Yeah, because for me, Infocom is one of the most influential companies in terms of games in my life. And there's certain things that I think for a person just become like a, a, a magic moment or a touchstone. It's, for some people, it's when they first saw Star Wars or you know, when they first read a certain book. Uh, I don't know what it is for kids these days. But uh, for me, when I first started playing the Infocom games, when I first played Zork, that's when I really discovered the power of what computer games could do. And I actually made friends with people because we both played the Infocom games and was friends with them for many years, it really was a thing that was a big, almost turning point in my life to realize how cool a computer game could be, how it could create a whole world of your imagination. And so I always look back at these games as, yeah, that's when I really discovered what computer games could do. Wow, that was deep. <laughs> for me, I just like enjoyed playing the games and stuff. Oh, okay. That's pretty much it. All right, so what we're going to talk about is the history of Infocom, and then we're going to talk a little bit about the games that we played the most, you know, that we remember the most. And uh, So a lot of this information came from this uh, article called Down from the Top of Its Game, the story of Infocom Incorporated. And this is a paper written by Hector Briseno, Wesley Chow, Andrew Glenn, Stanley Hu, Ashwin Krishnamurti, and Bruce Chisita. Yeah, and uh, we're going to have a link to that PDF file. That article on our uh, website, twitchasylum.com. Yep. All right, so I guess it all started back in the early 1970s at the MIT Laboratory for Computer Science, or LCS. Yeah, a small group at LCS, originally called the DM, or Dynamic Modeling Group. Of course, DM is also Dungeon Master, right? Worked <laughs> to develop a Lisp derivative programming language called MUDL, or MDL. Yeah, and a lot of this, I guess, you know, the whole MIT thing is, how, is covered in Hackers, Heroes of the Computer Revolution right. as well. So um, so this is all kind of the same stuff we talked about before. But uh, in addition to Muddle, uh, the DM was also famous for creating some games. And one of the members of the group, Dave Lebling, he was responsible for creating a game called Maze, which I guess was pretty popular back in the day. Oh, said back in the day. <laughs> you have to say that at least once, once per episode. Once a show, yeah. So they wanted to add some features to Muddle, and they developed libraries for it. And one of the first libraries was including the ability to persist objects. Yeah. So I guess to demonstrate that ability to persist objects, Mark Blank and Tim Anderson of the DM, or the Dynamic Modeling Group, wrote this simple like trivia game using their muddle language that they developed. And uh, a lot of people played it online, thought it was a really cool game. 
And around this same time, you know, they released this trivia game, uh, Colossal Cave Adventure was released, which was uh, Will Crowther and Don Woods, which we've talked about on almost every episode. Right. <laughs> and like everybody else, people at the uh, DM group became addicted to the game. Yeah. But they were addicted to it, but they were also, you know, they're really smart people at MIT, and they were a little dissatisfied with it, Tom. Right. I mean, it only had two-word inputs, you know, go north, uh, take rock, or whatever. So they thought they could do better. Right. And some objects weren't very interactive. I guess they weren't interactive at all. Like, they tried to do stuff, and there was nothing to be done. So we were like, why did did you even put this in the game if there's no point to it? Right. So a team of students began writing what would ultimately become the game Zork in the MDL programming language. In the muddle language, yeah. So that team consists of Mark Blank, Dave Lebling, Tim Anderson, and Bruce Daniels. Yeah, and I guess the majority of the game they wrote while uh, Dave Lebling was on vacation. So I missed taking a really <laughs> long vacation, I'm guessing. Or it was a short development yeah. cycle. And Mark, yeah, Mark Blank, I guess, was the guy who wrote uh, 60% of the code. Uh, one thing that I found interesting when reading this article is where the name Zork came from. Yeah. So according to Mark Blank, it's a nonsense word. He says, quote, there's all kinds of words like that that hackers tend to use, words like frob. Frob means a thingamajig, and it can be used as any part of speech. It's a generic noun and verb. Cars are full of frob, and they get frobbed. That's why we named the wizard in Zork 2 the Wizard of Frobaz. He's forgotten all his spells except the ones that begin with the letter F. I enjoy getting frobbed, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true, uh, these games, all the Infocon games, but especially the Zork games, really tend to sort of incorporate the hacker culture, the hacker subculture, and the right. kind of words that hackers would use, the kind of yeah. things that hackers would find funny. And so one of the things that I really related to it in these games is that they did incorporate that little mystical yeah. subculture. Yeah. The name Zork, okay, they briefly changed the name to Dungeon. But they had to change it back because TSR, which was the company originally behind Dungeons and Dragons, threatened to sue them. Right. So Zork, I guess it ran back then on a deck PDP ten mainframe, which is you know right. they were doing a lot of development at, in MIT on the on the PDP ten. And so what was kind of interesting, if you've read Hackers Heroes of the Computer Revolution, one of their you know things was they didn't want to have any security on their system, so anybody could log in and do whatever. Right. right? They didn't believe in security. No, it wasn't. Yeah. It's not that they couldn't have had yeah. it. They, they thought security was a bad thing. Right, so I guess a bunch of people, and I, I don't know how many, it was like 10 or 10 people at a time, I don't know how many it was, but could log in and they saw that, you know, shortly after releasing it, kind of word spread and people were logging in and playing uh, Zork from all over the world. <laughs> <laughs> so Zork had a very sophisticated English parser. Yeah. It allowed people to enter natural language commands, like hit the ugly troll with a double-bladed axe. So a lot different than what we saw in Colossal Cave Adventure, which was this, like, go north. You know, these, yeah. You know, this uh, now. And I remember at the time just being blown away by this parser and the fact that it almost seemed like you were just having an ordinary English interaction with the computer. Right. It was a mind-blowing experience at the time. Yeah, I guess the way it did it is it broke sentences into three basic items, right? A verb, a direct object, and an indirect object. So instead of, you know, just the two-word inputs, they figured out this mechanism to parse certain key things out of sentences and then try to put them together. Right. And the words were everything because there are no graphics. It's an all-text game. So the quality of the writing had to be great, and the parser had to be great, and they both were. All right, so why don't we just fast forward to 1979. A group of, I guess, the DM members wanted to work with each other outside of the DM lab at MIT, so they decided to form a company. 
So Alveza, who led, I guess, the DM group at the time, which a lot of people didn't really like him. They thought he was kind of standoffish. He actually contributed money to help get the company started. So I guess that was cool, right? Yeah. So each member also had to contribute some money, like from four hundred to two thousand dollars. And how much they contributed—that's the percentage of uh, stock that they received, right? And they decided to name the company Infocom because it was the name least offensive to everybody. Yeah, which is, I guess, a good reason to name it Infocom. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, pushed by his parents, Mark Blanc, who had written sixty percent of the code in Zork, graduated from medical school. And got an internship at a Pittsburgh hospital. Yeah, and I guess when he was in Pittsburgh, he, he contacted Joel Berez. And Berez had also uh, attended MIT and, and worked at LCS, but he didn't work directly on Zork. But these guys, I guess, became really good friends since they were both in Pittsburgh and they were MIT graduates. Right, and they wanted to take Zork and make it available for people who are buying home computers. Remember, home computers were a brand new thing at the time. Yeah, so instead of the PDP-10, uh, these computers are being bought by people... Uh, for home, you know, and I guess one of the main reasons was, you know, like accounting software like VisiCalc was getting released. So. Right. And we're talking about boxes like the TRS-80, the Apple II. Right. Things, things like, like that. that. So they wanted to make this game, uh, Joel and Mark wanted to make it available on those kind of computers. So at the same time, Tim Anderson and Dave Lebling, who were part of the group forming Infocom, proposed Zork as the first product that Infocom should sell. Because they said, we've already got this game, Zork, that we've developed within the DM. Maybe we could sell this as our first product for Infocom. And again, like we talked about at the same time, Joel Perez and Mark Blank were working on getting Zork to fit. So it, it was natural that um, they should have those guys come and work for Infocom as well and get them out of Pittsburgh. So they, they agreed and they decided to go ahead and leave Pittsburgh and join uh, Infocom as well. So on June 22, 1979, Infocom was officially incorporated. And while Zork was the ideal for the the idea for the initial product, the original intent of the company was to do something serious. So Zork was really just a means to the end, right? They were going to produce this game, get some money, and then do something else. Right. And in 1979, Visicalc was released, and that quickly became a huge success. And this got a lot of people to go out and purchase Apple and Commodore and IBM, Radio Shack, personal computers. Yeah, and I guess since it was VisiCalc they were purchasing uh, and they were personal computers, a lot of these people were very well educated. They tend to enjoy reading. And uh, so they were really kind of a good audience for something like Zork, which is primarily text-based. Right. At the time, you know, computers were more of a esoteric hobby than they are today where they're very widespread. So a lot of the people there were very geeky intellectuals. And so exactly, Zork was a perfect uh, thing for that target market. But it wasn't really easy to get Zork to fit on a personal computer. The PDP-10 had 512K memory versus 64K, which was commonplace on most computers at the time. And it required a megabyte of code, and floppy drives at the time could only hold 80K. <laughs> so getting this, this thing to fit, which is on a mainframe computer onto personal computers, was a pretty big task. Yeah. So Berez had the idea of making a virtual machine that would be specifically for text adventure games, and they called this the Z-Machine. Now today, of course, we have all sorts of virtual machines. There's the Java virtual machine, Python, all this stuff. It's very widespread. But think about back then deciding to make a virtual machine just for a particular game. That was a pretty good idea. Yeah, and I guess what was kind of cool about it is the instruction set supported only the specific operations available in the game. So you're able to really optimize your code by reducing it to specific uh, operations that were only used within their text adventure games, right? Yeah. So they also came up with a mechanism to load code from the disk into memory when needed so it didn't have to all be in memory at once. 
Yeah. Again, something commonplace today, but at the time, an interesting idea. I guess they also came up with a mechanism to compress the text. I don't know if you read about that, but it, yeah. like they were able to go from like, you know, like eight bits to six bits for characters and stuff like this. Right. So just anything to reduce uh, space, you know. And really, the original Zork was a pretty big game, and what they ended up having to do is split it into three sections. So it became Zork One, Zork Two, and Zork Three. Right, the original PDP uh, ten version was all three it was in all one. one game. Yeah. yeah. So the Z machine was a two-stage compiler that ultimately would write out Z-Machine bytecodes. And this made it really easy to run it on many different personal computers at the time because all you had to do is write the Z-Machine interpreter for each computer. And then the rest would be the same. So that was really cool because they could produce Zork, right, and uh, compile these bytecode versions and easily run it on any platform, right, that they wrote this interpreter for. Exactly. So in 1980, Zork was released for the TRS-80, the Radio Shack TRS-80, to pretty slow sales, and it didn't really become a hit until it was released later for the Apple II, and it immediately sold over 6,000 copies. All right, and after that, I guess Infocom went ahead and moved to a new office, and I guess their environment was really kind of freewheeling, and, uh, you know, it had a really open-type attitude, you know, with the people that were working there. It sounds like the dot-com bubble that would come much, much later. Yeah, exactly. So most of the employees were in their mid-20s. They came from all sorts of backgrounds. They had majored in computer science or electrical engineering or even political science or physics or some had MBAs. Right, so they had very diverse. So when Infocom first published Zork, they did it through a company called Personal Software. So they didn't self-publish. They uh, they used this company. And that was the same company that was responsible for publishing VisiCalc, which we talked about earlier. So they actually marketed Zork the same way, which probably mm-hmm. wasn't the best idea. Yeah, the packaging, it really didn't capture Zork at all. The, the box had this cover that had this big, brawny hero guy with, who had a mustache and armor and a broadsword. And my friends and I, when we played the game, we always used to joke about this. Like, where is that guy in the game? Who's that supposed to be? Is there armor? I don't understand. Yeah. And, of course, we understood that they were just trying to give you the idea with some kind of Dungeons and Dragons style game but still it seemed like a very strange box cover. So I think personal software because it wasn't selling they decided you know this isn't really working for us and we're going to focus you know specifically on VisiCalc and I guess they ultimately changed their name to VisiCorp and sold the remaining Infocom inventory that they have back to Infocom so all the discs and stuff in this box that you just talked about that didn't represent the game at all they sold back to Infocom and at this point I guess Infocom decided to publish their own software now I will say that later boxes for Zork 1 did not have that design they had like the word Zork with sort of a brick design that was only the first box that had that bizarre design but that's the one I had right and that's when Infocom was able you know when they went to publishing their own software they were able to produce packaging that they felt truly represented the game so that's when they had the zork one your greatest challenge lies ahead and downwards that's the one you're talking about i think the o with the door opening yeah, on it right yeah so yeah that's when they started uh packaging their own games they, they kind of came up with that so instead of just putting products in software and computer stores infocom titles they would often show up in bookstores Right, that was kind of their idea, is that you know we don't want our titles to have a limited shelf life like a lot of the other computer products that you see or saw at the time. So what they would do is they'd, they'd sell them to bookstores because they were primarily tech, so they'd sell right alongside books. And the cool part about that is that they would always be there. Like when new software right. came out, they wouldn't 
take them off the shelves. You, you know, you don't take books off the shelves because they get old. Right. It's like, so, oh, we're gonna we're gonna pull Moby Dick off the shelf because yeah. it's you know yeah. it's been around too long. So it was really cool for Infocom because they were able to sell you know right out of bookstores and then they wouldn't you know get outdated. And probably it was the right audience because it wasn't all text game. The sort of person who liked to read a, a fantasy novel or something probably like this. And uh, Zork stayed on the bestseller list for three years after its release. Which three kind of years. proves, you know, that that That's was amazing. a good, good marketing strategy. So after the release of Zork, the Infocom employees focused on developing new games. Uh, Mark Blank loved detective novels, so he developed a game called Deadline. Right. And this game, I had this game when it first came out, and it had a very interesting... Uh, character interaction. There were a lot of non-player characters who would move around and do different actions. And there was kind of a timeline to this game where if you weren't in the right room at the right time, you might miss something that was going on. And it virtually guaranteed that you have to play the game from the beginning over and over until you kind of figure this out. Now, that might sound kind of annoying, like, oh, I have to keep restarting from the beginning. But actually, it was a lot of fun. Because every time you played through it, you'd, you'd find out something new. Oh, if, I'm, if I go over here, if I'm, if I'm in the right place to observe this room or this, this uh, corridor or this garden, you know, something interesting happens. And eventually, the more you played it, the more you figured out about what was really going on and were able to solve the mystery. It was also the first game, I think, where they used their new packaging. You know, what happened was, I guess, he ran out of room to fit all the game's pieces onto the 80 kilobytes of disk space. So they worked with this new advertising agency, and they created like several artifacts that were essential to the story. Photos, yeah. interrogation reports, lab reports, uh, pills found near the body. And uh, they made that kind of part of the game. It was great. Yeah. yeah, the game box would come with all these little, yeah, artifacts is a great word for it. And these were physical objects that sort of drew you into the world of the game. It was also, you know, it had an additional benefit too, which is discouraging pirating the game. Because right. if you if you got a pirated copy of the game, you wouldn't get all these cool uh, extras. And those extras contained information you really needed to solve the puzzle. So while Mark Blank, he worked on uh, Deadline, I guess Dave Lebling, um, he started Starcross, which we'll talk about later. But, um, you know, going along with the packaging idea, do you remember Starcross? It yeah, actually Starcross looked, was a science fiction right, text space But game. it looked like a spaceship, the packaging. Right, remember, yeah. it was like a saucer, mm-hmm. which is really cool. So I think their packaging, that's one thing that really attracted me to the Infocom games. You know? Absolutely. The packaging was fantastic. And every time I bought an Infocom game, after I started to catch on that there would always be these cool things in the box. Right. You know, you started to look forward to that. Like, what kind of treat would be in the box? It was cool. So one thing that was kind of nice about having the Z machine we talked about earlier is the fact that it made developing games really easy because there's this limited set of commands right. that had to be implemented. All right, so this guy, Steve Moretzky, he started as a tester, and he eventually went on to write, like, the sci-fi game Planetfall. And so, he, yeah, he wrote a bunch of games. Yeah, he wrote like I think nine games. And Amy Briggs, she also started as a tester. She developed Plundered Hearts, this romance game aimed at women, and she went on to develop three more games. So it's like you know, with this simple uh, toolkit, it was easy to turn out turn out these games technology wise. Now coming up with the story and all the interactions, that was a real challenge. But it was great because they could bring in people who were really game authors who didn't have to develop the engine from scratch. They could focus on developing the plot and the characters and yeah. the writing. 
And I guess the real complexity, like I said, was that they had to account for things like multiple outcomes depending on how the player played the game. They had to make sure the stories flowed smoothly. Characters stayed in character. The puzzles were challenging but not impossible, although I would argue some of them were impossible. <laughs> some of them were pretty hard. <laughs> and I guess Dave Leveling was quoted as saying, Infocom had uh, putting games down to a science. A team consisted of one author, one interpreter, and some QA. So uh, they could bring a game to market in about nine months for about five hundred thousand, which seems like a lot. But back then, if you, they're they were making so much money off these games, that's really really nothing. Right. So with all the new games coming out, Infocom stepped up its competitive advertisements, and I remember this ad campaign. They made fun of stupid graphical adventures, and in their ads, they had a picture of a human brain. And they said, we unleashed the most powerful graphics technology. In Which other is words, a great ad. Your dude. imagination. That is right? an awesome ad. And they, they showed this really low-res, blocky-looking monster. And they said, would you shell out $1,000 to match wits with this? I remember both those advertisements. Yeah. And it was true, though. Because, of, you know, especially at the time, with graphics not being very good, and with this text parser and engine being really good, the experience you got from the Infocom games was absolutely superior. And I guess some of the people who are creating those graphical products kind of got offended by these advertisements. Mm-hmm. And in fact, Ken Williams, who we've talked about, obviously, of Sierra, he, he called Infocom and he complained that these ads were, quote, too vicious. <laughs> so as these Infocom games became popular, more and more people started to send them letters begging for hints because the games were kind of difficult. I guess that's where the Zork Users Group came from, right? Yeah, so they had this Zork Users Group, and it was a sort of pay-for-hint service. In the new Zork Times. And they had this newsletter, <laughs> yeah. and I, I remember this because I subscribed to this newsletter. It was called the New Zork Times. And it was a kind of a parody of the New York Times. It had the same sort of uh, layout and everything, But it was all in the universe of Zork. And eventually, they got in legal trouble over the name because it was obviously making light of the New York Times. And even though legally this should have been allowable as a parody, uh, I remember getting the notice that they had to stop calling it that and they had to stop doing this. I I think probably, just my guess, but I think they probably just didn't have the money or the time to fight it in court. Or didn't really care. Or didn't care, so they just changed it. So I guess that group, you know, the Zork users group, grew to over 20,000 members, so they decided to introduce Invisiclues. These were these hint books, and, and Chris has one we're looking at right now. And what it was is it's a, it's a printed book, and the hints are written in there, but they're written in invisible ink, and there's a special pen that you run over the area of the page to reveal the clue. And the purpose of that is so that you don't accidentally read a clue that you didn't mean to read and have a portion of the game spoiled for you. So it was really clever uh, technology. And i got to say, looking at my... Uh, I have an Invisiclue book here for Suspended. The uh, you know Once you do expose the answer, it doesn't really last 20 years because it's, it's hard to read. <laughs> it is kind of hard it's to It's hard read to read those. what it says after yeah. I exposed all the clues. But uh, Yeah, I'm not sure those were meant to be uh, read so far <laughs> after that it was published. But yeah, it was, it was a cool thing. I had some of those Invisiclues books myself. So the books sold incredibly well. Uh, so well that uh, I guess... Softcell, who listed kind of the top-selling books and games and stuff at the time, uh, people complained, you know, other computer book manufacturers, that uh, Invisiclues were filling up the whole list. Of like the bestseller the, list. Of the bestseller. So they, yeah. they clumped them all into one book called Invisiclues, which had the benefit of it always being number one. <laughs> <laughs> 
So let's talk a little bit about the innovation in the technology. There was innovation? Well, there were only minor innovations over the years. Uh, They slowly refined the parser to make sense of increasingly complex sentences. Um, They started having scheduled events in the games, like I talked about with Deadline and some of the other mystery games where you had to be in the right place at the right time to see it. And they added to the ability to have more sophisticated interactions with non-player characters. Um, There's another thing that I thought was funny. It's not exactly an innovation, but it's sort of a cleverness. They would have versions of puzzles from older games in their games, but updated. So, for example, in the Colossal Cave Adventure, there's a maze where all the rooms look the same. They have the same description. And one of the tricks for solving this maze is, well, you can drop different items in each room of the maze, and then that makes each room different because you go into this room and it says, oh, you know, there's a brick here, or you go into this room and it says there's a rope here, and that way you can map out the maze. Well, I think they must have figured that a lot of players playing Zork would have played Colossal Cave Adventure. So what they did is, there's a maze in Zork too, but if you try to use that same trick, and you drop your items in each room in the maze, what happens is there's a thief character who falls along behind you, and he picks up your items and keeps them. <laughs> and so you can actually hear him saying, and I, I don't remember the exact wording, but he says something like, hmm, what a fine sword I find here. This is great. And he, <laughs> he keeps it. So if you thought you were going to be clever and use the same solution that you knew from the earlier game, it doesn't work. All right, so in 1983, the Infocon games are flying off the shelves. Zork 1 had the top spot. You had, like, Zork 2, Zork 3, Planetfall, Enchanter, Suspended, Starcross, and Infidel. They all ranked in the top 40. And Tim Anderson, he said, you know, he was quoted as saying, it was phenomenal. We just had a basement that printed money. (laughs) That's right. When people bought an Infocom game, they knew they were purchasing a really exciting, engaging experience with great character development. And for those of you listeners who this may have been before your time, um, if you want to talk about a, a brand that really inspired brand loyalty and expire, inspired excitement about the latest release, Infocom at the time was exactly that. I remember just feeling like every Infocom game that comes out, I'm going to buy it. It's going to be great. It's yeah. going to be state-of-the-art. It's going to really entertain me. Speaking of um, exceptional character development, did you play Planetfall at all? Yeah. 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 So there's this character of Floyd the Robot. And I guess in one section, he has to go through this uh, room of killer mutants to obtain a card for you, who are the lead character, right? <laughs> and uh, by doing so, he, he gets killed in the process, but he makes it back and he utters a, a few last words to oh, you. Oh, you gave it away. <laughs> so the thing I wanted to say about this is that many people, I guess at the time, were said that they cried when they learned that he had, you know he died in this attempt to get you the card, right? I think it was the writing. It, it, it was the way it was written, yeah. Yeah. So my point is that, I'll, I don't know if you heard about this, but like David Jaffe, the guy who did God of War, he's like said, my next game is going to make people cry. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of funny to me because I'm looking back at this text-based game, you know, that's written 20 plus years ago, and it already achieved that. Yeah, that's true. So, um, you know, it's kind of funny. Without graphics and all that kind of stuff, he was they were able to achieve that back then. So it's like um, developers today are really trying to catch up with the emotions and stuff that were captured in the games back then. That's what a lot of uh, the older game designers say, is that some of the most, uh, what would you call it, the, the highest impact emotional experiences were in the old games. And maybe that's why you and I still like those old games. Yeah, could be. So, Infocom made a shift, though. Yeah. And they shifted to also developing business software. Right. In 1982, 
Infocom started what they called the Business Products Division. And really, as we talked about earlier, this was kind of their intent from the beginning, was to do more than games to produce business products. And Zork was really just you know a way to get money to fund that. Right. They thought there was going to be higher margins selling business software, which is probably true. You can charge more for it. And this is what I found kind of interesting from reading this article, is that it said some of the employees were actually embarrassed to tell people they were working on games. That's funny, because now like that would be a great That'd thing be the to greatest be able to thing, say. Right? Right? Yeah. I mean, now it would be like you'd be embarrassed to be working on some sort of accounting software or something. <laughs> or the stuff we work on. Or what we do. No. Anyway. Um so they thought that the same talent and skills that made them successful in games could also be applied to business software. Yeah, and they felt that like diversifying their business line would help them grow, so doing business software as well as, uh, as games. Now, I remember probably 10 episodes ago or so, uh, we talked about this whole diversification thing that it rarely works out. Yeah. At least for game companies. So I guess back at MIT, uh, there was a group within LCS, which was on the same floor as a dynamic modeling group, and they'd done a survey of existing data management systems and also created some UI designs for what future products could be like within that kind of genre of product. And two of the main people in that group were Brian Berkowitz and Richard Ilson. And they'd found that the leading database, I guess was DBase2 at the time, was very difficult to use. So they felt they could create a relational database system for a personal computer that would be much, obviously, easier to use, right? Mm-hmm. So they started shopping around this concept to different companies, and they eventually talked to uh, Mark Blank and Joel Perez and Al Veza about working with Infocom. And uh, both sides felt this was a natural fit, so Ilson and Berkowitz joined Infocom in October of 82. The original name, I guess, was Infobase, is what they were going to call this, but they switched that name to Cornerstone. Yeah, I remember seeing the ads for this, and the the ads for the Cornerstone database were in a similar style to the ads for Zork in those games. And so I was kind of confused because I was like, Cornerstone, is this some new game? Yeah. And then I thought, and then I read it more carefully. It's like, is it a database? Why would they have a database? It's weird, right? It yeah. doesn't really make sense. Anyway, they decided to leverage the virtual machine design for Infocom, which made it easy to port to multiple platforms. Yeah, but I guess it obviously a database is a lot different than a game you know, environment. It's a lot more dynamic mm-hmm. in a sense. So they had to make huge changes to the virtual machine to support a database. So they stuck to the goals, and Cornerstone was designed to have a very friendly interface that would be menu-driven, have context-sensitive help, uh, have command completion... It was very flexible to allow for variable length fields, multi-valued fields, and a large set of data types. I guess probably the most important feature was its relational capabilities. It was able to easily uh, you know, relate different types of data, uh, much like databases today probably, right? Right. Um, back then, not all databases were relational databases. I mean, now pretty much every popular database is a relational database. But back then, there were also hierarchical databases, uh, relational database was sort of a, a cool new thing. And so when they changed this business software type of role, they also changed management. So Joel Perez, he had been uh, president and kind of the de facto CEO since 1979, was replaced by Al Veza. So this was the guy that people didn't really like <laughs> back at MIT. So he was named the CEO. And the reason the board of directors felt they needed to do this is they felt they needed a seasoned leader who was able to attract investors in the company. Right. So Berez at this point was made COO or Chief Operating Officer. So this kind of didn't set well, I guess, with a lot of the Infocom employees. <laughs> right. And uh, one employee was quoted as saying, you know, quote, I don't value my stock as much as I did before Al was in charge. 
So Infocom found it pretty difficult to raise money from investors. The venture capitalists really didn't like the fact that they were involved in two completely different markets, both business and games. But eventually, they were able to borrow about half a million dollars from the Massachusetts Capital Resource Company. So we mentioned previously, uh, before we talked about the games division, that in 1983, the game sales were just booming. Right. And analysts kind of predicted that there would be record growth for computers in the next several years. So... In response to that, Infocom went ahead and financed Cornerstone with the money they expected to have come through the doors eventually when they sold this product, which maybe wasn't the best decision. Right. And so they hired really rapidly and expanded the employees from 32 to 100. Again, this is like shades of the dot-com boom later on, right? Well, I think we've been in companies like this as well, right? <laughs> Where they start to just yeah. you know, add tons of people. They think it's going to be a big success, and then right. eventually have to maybe scale back or even worse, right? So, so they moved. You know, they had to move to a bigger building because they had all these more people, and the bigger building was a lot more expensive. But of course, you know, where's most of this money going? It's going to the business division. But who made the money originally? It was the, games the games division. division. Yeah. So a lot of the people that were still in the games divisions were like, "This is kind of lame, dude. All the stuff that I worked for, they're going to spend it on all these guys in the business products that haven't really proven themselves." So there was kind of resentment building, I would say. Not only that, but the games division was told there's no more money for doing exploratory engineering and adding, you know, new features. And one thing that they wanted to add, I know, at one point was graphics earlier, you know. They wanted to try to experiment with that. But there was no money, you know, because it was all going into Cornerstone, this database system. So at this point, the close-knit group of friends that really started Infocom ceased to exist because it was so much of a bigger company. But in January of 1985, Cornerstone was released. Right, and it got really positive reviews. Everything's going great, right? Positive reviews. Magazines liked the ease of use, the fact it fit on a single floppy. But... What came along? D-Base 3. D-Base 3. And really, the failure of Cornerstone came down to a couple of technical issues. First of all, it was not programmable the way that D-Base 3 was. So users couldn't customize it for what they were doing. Which is kind of stupid if you think about a database not being customizable, (laughs) right? (laughs) And also performance. It used a virtual machine, which is great for portability to different platforms. But who cared about portability when it was released? Because the PC was a dominant platform. Right. And what people really wanted was performance because any particular user wasn't using it on all these different platforms. They were using it for what they wanted, and it was slow. Right, so I guess in the end, it uh, or maybe this was the first year, it sold only 10,000 copies, and it accounted for $1.8 million in sales, and that was well off their mark that they had kind of planned, which was $4.7 million. So, And on top of that, the games division for the first time was pretty much stagnant. It didn't grow, so, uh, so they didn't have a lot of additional funds coming in to cover all these new costs that they had for developing this database product. So what did they do? Well, they had to cut costs. Right. And they laid off the whole Cornerstone team. Yay! Oops. Uh, Employees had to take salary cuts. Oops. They had to look for outside funding. But there there was was a big... industry downturn in 1985. 85 was not a good year for the tech industry, so that scared off potential investors. Um, Joel Perez ran into Jim Levy, the CEO of Activision, around this time. And Levy offered to buy Invocom and cover its outstanding debts. So I guess on February 12, 1986, the board approved the merger, and that's when Infocom became a part of uh, Activision for uh, $7.5 million. So a lot of people saw this was a great thing for Infocom because Levy was a fan of their games. But after six months, Bruce Davis replaced Levy as the CEO. 
And Davis was never really a fan of the Infocom deal. Yeah, and it was kind of he. It seems like he imposed a bunch of stuff on them, right? Like, for example, uh, they were forced to stop using their own packaging plant or the packaging plant they'd been using, and to use Activision's, which cost them twice as much to produce their packages. And on top of that, I guess they weren't very good. Like they would mess up the discs and instruction booklets and stuff. So people were being uh, shipped a lot of stuff. So for the first time, messed up stuff. So the first time people start to question kind of the integrity of the products that they're getting from Infocom. Right. And Davis also forced Infocom to sell the products the same way that the Activision products were sold. So they could no longer sell to bookstores and that gave them a more limited shelf life. Right. And I think they also tried to make them produce eight games a year versus the four or five they were previously. And they still had the same amount of staff and the same amount of funding. So it was, you know, something's going to suffer and it's probably going to be the quality of the games. Another factor was about the same point, graphics in games were really improving. Nintendo had just released the NES in 1985. The Sierra games, which you talked about on a previous episode, were becoming very popular. And the Origin Ultima series. So there was a shift to graphics, and there was also a shift to computers being used by the masses instead of the early adopters who had the you know sort of more elite higher education and, and more of a geeky style to them. So the people that were playing computers now were more wowed by good graphics more than right. intelligent games, right? So the graphical games might have been less sophisticated than Infocom text adventure games, but the new players loved them. And Infocom, you know, obviously responded to this, and they re- released the big hit. What was it called, Tom? <laughs> it was called Fublitsky. Fublitsky. Remember that one? Yeah, I do remember that one. Yeah. It was kind of sad. This was a multiplayer graphical scavenger hunt game, and it was a big commercial flop. Yeah, the graphics sucked, is what I remember. The graphics weren't very good, and, you know, they say this was because it was developed for the least common denominator to run on lower, uh, multiple platforms. So they still wanted to stick to this ability to run games on multiple platforms, but of course you couldn't optimize it for the PC, so you had these kind of crappy graphics. Uh, but on top of that, users found it difficult to play, and I don't think they can blame that on the multi-platform issues. Probably not. Yeah. So from 87 to 89, Infocom continued creating games for Activision, but they were losing about $200,000 per quarter. And finally, Activision had enough. On May 5th of 89, Activision laid off 15 of the remaining 26 Infocom employees, and the rest were given the opportunity to move to Silicon Valley. Only 5 out of the 11 accepted that. And even after this, Activision released a few more games under the Infocom name, but for all practical purposes, Infocom was dead. Right, and that was kind of the end of Infocom, right? Yeah, that was really the end. So, do you think it's worth going through some of the games? Yeah, I'd like to talk about some of the games. Uh, A lot of these games, in one form or another, are still available or still playable. And a lot of these games I played and loved. And really, at least a few of these games, I think, are among the best computer games ever made. So, before we get to that, what do you think about the history of Infocom? Well, we've talked about this before, about you know how a company starts out with something and then they diversify into different areas and they try to grow. And oftentimes, they lose sight of what originally made them so successful and yeah, their original happened, mission. Same thing happened with Sierra, right? They yeah. tried to diversify. It seems like a common story that you know they, they really have one thing going great and by trying to grow and diversify, it all sort of gets lost. Yeah. Um, let's talk about some of the games. Of course, we have to talk about the Zork series. Zork 1, 2, and 3. 
This game takes place in the ruins of an ancient empire far underground. And, you know, you're an adventurer. There are a couple things about this game that may be surprising today. One is that in these games, you generally don't play as a particular character with a particular backstory. You don't really find out anything about you. Right. It's not like, you know, Tomb Raider where you're Laura Croft. In Zork, you're not anyone in particular. And so it makes you feel like the character is really you, yourself, the player. Yeah. And they do a pretty good job of not saying anything specific about you. They don't even say that you're male or female. So whoever you are, you sort of feel like it's really you that's exploring the world of Zork. Another thing about Zork, and in, to some extent all these games, but especially Zork, is that these games really have a very complex, elaborate, detailed backstory. They really create a whole world. And at the time, this was unusual. I mean, what's the backstory to asteroids? What's the backstory to Space Invaders or Pong? Not yeah. much, right? I mean, there's not. you don't feel like you're in some complex world. But Zork... When I played Zork, I really felt like this was a world that was extremely well-developed, like almost like Lord of the Rings or something. It was this immense yeah. creation. And uh, that's really part of what made it so cool. So one of the games that I played quite a bit, I think it was on the Commodore 64, was Wishbringer. Yeah. Do you remember Wishbringer? Yeah, this was, uh, this was part of the series of games that came right after Zork. Right. So you're a postal clerk in a seaside village uh, called Festeron, I think it was. And you deliver a strange envelope to a magic shop and discover that an old woman's black cat has been kidnapped by the evil one. And the woman <laughs> asks for your help. And when you leave the magic shop, you find yourself trapped in this kind of nightmare world. And uh, the town is now full of like goons, trolls, vultures, towers. And mm-hmm. uh, you become entangled in the struggle between good and evil and uh, everyone seeks to possess a magic stone of dreams known as the Wishbringer. Um, so that's kind of the whole you know, plot of the game. Do you remember the, what came in this game? No. There's a, a glow-in-the-dark stone. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it. there's a little stone. That's yeah, right. it was sweet, dude. I loved my glow-in-the-dark stone. <laughs> but I played this game a lot, and I, I never got to the end, but it, it was a blast. I need to go back and play this game again, because it is one of my favorite Infocom games. I just like the whole feel of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's also Deadline, which we've mentioned, where it's a detective story. Uh, you're investigating a murder. Uh, there is Starcross, which is a science fiction game where you're out looking through an asteroid belt as a sort of space miner on a survey ship. There's a game called Suspended. I have this game on the Apple II. This is a really interesting concept. You're physically immobilized, but you have six different robots at your disposal. And by manipulating the robots, you have to bring the filtering computers back in balance. And each robot has a different perception of the world and different abilities. Um, One has sight, one has hearing, one has access to computer information in the computer's memory. And through using the robots, you have to save the planet. See, now, what I find interesting about hearing about the plots of all these games is there's even just in these little descriptions, more you know thought put into that than most games that you play today. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> it's interesting. And on yeah. top of that, what I find even more uh, you know interesting is the fact that the guys that are writing these games or wrote these games were just people. They weren't writers, right? Right. They weren't professional writers with you know a ton of published books. Right. For their They're name. people out of MIT. So it's kind of yeah. crazy to me that, that but the writing was really good. Was really good, right? Mm-hmm. So um, then comes the series of games that 
were really almost sequels to Zork, uh, including Enchanter. And in these games, you gain the ability to cast spells, right? Which made the game a lot more complex, and and a lot. And these games also emphasized a little bit more combat. So uh, it became almost more like an RPG where you would fight against different monsters, but still all text based. I guess then there was uh, Cutthroats, and uh, wasn't that? About like scuba diving or something like that. I don't remember this game very well. Well, you're like a salvage diver trying to get treasure out of four shipwrecks. Yeah, and I do scuba dive, and I never played this game, but just kind of based on the theme, I might want to go back and play it. Now. I think you should go play it. Yes, it looks pretty cool. I remember the box art. Mm-hmm. You remember we used to have this like scuba diver, and he looks all like shocked or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a cool looking box. And there was Infidel too, which had a really cool box as well. Infidel was sort of an Indiana Jones like idea where you're going through the Egyptian desert and searching for a lost pyramid. Yeah, that sounds. I'm, that's another game that I didn't play, but I, w- I would love to play now. We Speaking just, of playing these games, yeah, how do you play them? Well, there's a couple ways to play them. Uh, you know, the Zorks are free now. Yeah, they're free downloads for uh, PC and Mac, right? And you can also play some of them um, on the web. Yeah. I know there's an applet version of Zork uh, I've seen. We're going to have links to these. Uh, if you go to twitchasylum.com for the show notes, you can see the links. Um, there's also a many different Z machine interpreters that have been implemented. There's like Java ones, ones in, C's, in C, uh, and then I think there's one called Frots or something like yeah, that. Yeah, really popular. And there's one of these for the Palm Pilot. Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of different platforms have a Z machine. So as soon as these uh, Z machine interpreters got released, a lot of people started creating these user kind of created games. Right. So people made their own text adventures that use the Z machine. And people are still making these today. And they have contests for uh, making the best one each year. All right. So I'll have a, a link on the podcast page that will show you all the user kind of created Infocom games that you guys can go ahead and download. So do you think, Chris, that there's a future for text adventures? Are there ever going to be more text adventures on a mainstream platform? No. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I mean, to me, I love the text adventures, and they were a blast back then. What I remember most is that a lot of my friends would play them, and I'd go over there and I'd be really into them, and they'd have like, you know, maps drawn of all the locations and stuff oh, like yeah. that. Oh, yeah, I had maps that yeah. I was proud of. They right, like and they would just be so frameable. intense on these games. I just remember thinking, man, these people are really into it, and then I'd go home and play my games and be really into it, and it was just kind of this whole thing where everybody was kind of simultaneously into playing these games, yeah. and it just kind of felt like this whole community. Right. right? And I just, I don't see that happening today. It's just too fragmented, and people are too into graphics, and being the next big engine out there. I, and like we've talked about before, the whole um, storyline of games is kind of an afterthought right now because it takes a lot right. of time to, which is what I find interesting about Infocom games because it isn't seasoned writers that did these things it's people right out of MIT right. yeah, and they wrote some of the best game storylines I think that were ever written it seems to me like the thing today that's the most similar in flavor to these text adventures is the alternate reality games like the I Love Bees things that went right. with Halo and yeah. you know it seems like maybe that's the kind of uh, underground thing that has that same quality of creating a whole universe that you would go and explore yeah. although the, those games are more designed to be played by lots of people at the same time right. sharing information Yeah. alright well I think that does it for Infocom cool alright well we'll see you in two weeks we'll see you next time
that calls are recorded for research purposes. Voice recognition works best if you speak at a normal volume and do not leave spaces between words. Speaking loud and enunciating does not help. West of house, you are standing in an open field west of a white house with a boarded front door. There is a small mailbox here. Open mailbox. You said, open mailbox. Opening the small mailbox reveals a leaflet. Take leaflet. You said, take leaflet. Taken. Read leaflet. You said, read leaflet. Welcome to Zork. Zork is a game of adventure, danger, and well-cunning, in which you will explore some of the most amazing territory ever seen by mortals. No computer should be without one. Go north. You said, north, north of house. You are facing the north side of a white house. There is no door here, and all the windows are boarded up. To the north a narrow path winds through the trees. Go north. You said, north, forest path. This is a path winding through a dimly lit forest. The path heads north-south here. One particularly large tree with some low branches stands at the edge of the path. Go south. There's some in the tree, wasn't there? Yeah, but you gotta go in the house. Okay. You said, kill all. What do you want to kill me all with? <laughs> kill all with hands. <laughs> what? <laughs> you said, kill all. It's not clear what you're referring to. Go south. You said, south. North of house. Yeah. Go east. Tick-tock. Go east. You said, all east. You used the word east in a way that I don't understand. Go east. You said, east, behind house. You are behind the white house. A path leads into the forest to the east. In one corner of the house there is a small window which is slightly ajar. Open window. Tick-tock. Open window. You said, open window. With great effort, Life's you open the window far enough to allow entry. Go in house. Tick-tock. Enter house. Tick-tock. Enter house. <laughs> Don't yell at him. Tick-tock. Enter house. You said, east. Clearing. No! You are in a small clearing in a well-marked forest path that extends to the east and west. West. You said, up. There is no two who are suitable for climbing. Go west. You said, kill west. What do you want to kill, kill west, west with? What? Kill west with sword. Oh. You said, with sword. You don't have that. Uh-huh. Go TikTok. west. Go, Go west. west. Oh, shit. TikTok. Go west. You said, kill. What do you want to kill? Myself. <laughs> Hello? Hello? You said, all. What do you want to kill me all with? Go west. You said, kill. It's not clear what you're referring to. West. You said, West, behind house. Finally. <laughs> open window. Tick-tock. Enter. Tick-tock. Enter house. You said, turn. What do you want to turn? 
man. Examine house. TikTok. Enter house. You said lantern. What do you want to turn the lantern with? <laughs> what? Oh, man. TikTok. E- examine me. You said take take east. You used the word take in a way that I don't understand. Oh, man. House. You said all. There was no verb in that sentence. Okay. South. TikTok. South. You said up. You can go that way. House. 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 Oh, no. It's not going to work. House. <laughs> you said all with inventory. You used the word inventory in a way that I don't understand. Enter house. TikTok. Go in. TikTok. Go in. You said kill. What do you want to kill? <laughs> Why does it think everything we say is kill? I don't understand. Enter the house. Enter the damn house. You said with bottle. There was no verb in that sentence. With bottle? <laughs> Enter house, you goddamn piece of shit. <laughs>